Secrets from a coach. Thrive and maximize your potential in the evolving workplace. Your weekly podcast with Debbie Green of Wishfish and Laura Thompson-Staveley of Phenomenal Training. Debs. How are you doing, Law? Oh, I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. I just thought, wow, we're having a good time at the moment, having a read of all these various books and things, aren't we? So it's all good. I yeah. Know. So the Mindful Manager Book Club, we thought it might be a handy, helpful mini-series to focus on the amount of people that are saying, it was one of my New Year's resolutions to read yeah. more books. And then there's the actual reality of, but when, when, when do you find the time to do that? And particularly if your life is a bit more commuting, a bit more traveling. Our intention behind this was, well, actually, here are some of the books that we have seen have made an impact on people when they have read them or we've yeah. mentioned them in sessions. Yes. And also linking that to some practical takeaways. Yeah. So last week we did The Surrounded by Idiots. And this week we're going to explore one of your all-time favorite books, which is 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. So, Law, tell us a little bit about what it is about this book that makes you go, wow. Well, Debs, just even the title just took my breath away. So the title, 4,000 Weeks, um, and uh, Oliver Berkman, who authored it, he he would ask people, like his friends, you know, how many weeks do you think are in an average human lifespan? And it would range from anything in the thousands to, um, you know, hundreds of thousands. And then uh, when you actually boil it down, get the calculator out and divide it by, you know, by the number of weeks, it's 4,000 is the average human lifespan, which just sounds so pitifully small. Doesn't it? that it just sort of stops you in your tracks. So for me, there were two key things that I found just even from the title alone. Number one, just that assertiveness of, am I saying yes to the right things and no to the right things? Because time is so finite. And the other thing I found quite liberating was, um, so what do I want to do with those then? Because actually this idea of, well, when should we go away on that trip? Oh, well, maybe not this summer, maybe another summer. And it just reminds you that actually every summer that passes is one less summer you potentially have. So I found this rather than depressing, I actually found it really empowering and liberating, which is time is finite. And his subtitle for this book is A Time Management Guide for Mortals. And his goal behind this book was rather than trying to always maximize our time, clearing off the to-do list, let's just take a bit of a bigger picture perspective on time and what it means. And whenever I've brought it along at sessions and add it on tables, it just it just gets a lot of conversation going, Devs, because time and time management is a real hot topic, particularly for anyone that's working in like a hybrid environment as well. If you've got more time working, people are spending more time working, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> And I wanted to ask you, actually, Law, because when you read through the book, he sort of relates stuff back to the Industrial Revolution timeframe and how that transformed our use of time um, as a resource to exploit. So when when he talked about that, it was quite fascinating to see the link and how we may not have quite... Um, moved on from those times because I don't know when that was, feels like it was forever ago. But when you read that bit about how do we use our time well, because obviously he's saying that sometimes the busier we get, um, the more we can cram in, therefore we have no time. What's your take on that, Law? 
Well, it really hooks my imagination, Debs, because again, just that interest that you and I have in on the evolution of work and I mean, our whole premise of this podcast is how do we thrive through this rapidly evolving world of work? And just even seeing how the first time that there was this need to muster everyone together at the same point and have a meeting point at 9am, for example, was the monks. So yes. the monks were the first workers almost who then said, right, you know, we beyond knowing when the sun rises and the sun sets, actually there are times where we want to come together and pray at certain times and our natural world isn't going to give us those triggers as to whether it's 4am or 5am. We need an artificial way to be able to know when to meet. Whereas up until the industrial evolution, I mean, it was way after that, but up until those points, you just worked the land and nature and the environment told you when to get up and when to go to bed. So that that idea of this, actually, where did the working week have to, where, where did it all start to be designed as nine till five, five days during the week and just how artificial those constraints are. And so where that can then link to those feelings of guilt and pressure and stress that he says he sees a lot around people's relationship to time. It's this kind of guilty or stressful kind of um, um, relationship we might have with time is it's all made up and it's all artificial. And actually, if we can get our heads round and just accept the realities of time, we don't own it. It's not ours. It's just there as a resource that we then have, a bit like the air we breathe. And there'll be certain things we can do about it and certain things we can't. So what that then enables you, Debs, is a bit like that insight you had from that book, The Art of How Not to Give a... Yeah, that one. (laughs) (laughs) Dot, 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 dot. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it's that liberating assertiveness bit of actually, what do I want? What does that then mean? And how do I do it in a way that aligns my values? Yeah. And I think that's so important, Lauren. I know when we've done some of the workshops, a lot of people feel that guilt, as you've mentioned, around, you know, and also with technology coming in that is enabling us to do so much more, but we're not sort of, doesn't appear to be using it to our advantage in inverted commas. So how do you, how do you, when you're in your room and people are asking you about, how do I use my time well? How do I get over the guilt? And in his book, he talks about some things we can consider. So how have you applied them to everyday living so we get over ourselves in relation to never having enough time and, oh my God, I feel so guilty because I'm not being productive enough and all that negative self-talk that goes on. What do you suggest? Well, a real speedy, speedy digest of the book is the key, there are key three key premises. And then off the back of that, he suggests six tactics that can then help. And what we thought might be useful is aligned to each of those tactics. What's something very practical that you could do right now after listening to this, either digesting it in your mind and thinking about your next steps or getting a piece of paper out and planning, you know, or whatever, however it is you capture your thinking. So if I take us first of all through the three key premises, and then we can have a look at those six tactics. And then from that, then what might be a practical next step? Cool. Let's take a moment to think about those then. So Law, talk us through those three key premises then. Okay, so the three key premises uh, that he suggests we wrap our heads around and then it will reduce this stress, guilt, pressure, all that kind of mind talk that can build along around um, our relationship with time. The first one is the quicker we can accept we will never have full control over our time, (laughs) the easier our relationship with time will be. 
So there are things that are way out of our control. You might have planned to the nth degree a journey, but all of those things are potentially relayed on hundreds of other people being able to work without any disruption. But if one of those things gets disrupted, then your train's not going to run, for example. And immediately there'll be things that then that might have an impact. So the first key premise is the quicker we can accept we'll never have full control over time, the more empowered we are then be to be, to be able to relate with time well. The second one then is a bit more deep and meaningful. So accepting that we are mortal. You will never be able to do all the things you want to do to the level that you want to do in a finite lifetime. And what he says, and I don't know if I entirely agree with this, but what he says is, is, is once you've committed to be a musician, you're less likely to have the time to be fully committed to being an astronaut. Yeah, I read that as well, thinking, <laughs> really? Does that yeah. work that way? Interesting. Now, you could be a musical-loving astronaut Ooh, or a I like musician that. who attends night classes around you know, um, astronomy, but to do two things, um, at some point we have to make a decision of what do we actually want Otherwise, you can end up not really ever do, committing to one thing or another, because if it feels like time is limitless, we could always put it off. If actually we remember that we are mortal, so therefore, if you've got an idea and you want to do something, make it happen as soon as you can, because um, as soon as you have committed to something, but one of the reasons he thinks why people procrastinate is, well, if I start committing to this, that reduces my opportunity for, do, for, for doing something else. But you'll never be able to do every single thing. You'll never be able to visit every single country and do the things you want to do. There'll always be things, some FOMO that you might see yeah. because time is finite, which yeah. is the reminder of why it's so precious. So therefore it's to then use it well. So that's the second yeah, one. That's the second. What's the third? The third one is we've therefore got to make choices about our, what I call these MITs, our most important things. Yeah. So the more assertive you are with checking in with yourself, actually, what are my most important things? I guess this is the purpose, purpose and value stuff, isn't it, Debs? It is, Then yeah. you can then make choices, which means with your finite amount of time, you are spending it and investing it in how you want to. So those are the three key premises. Mm. The quicker we can accept you never have full control, the easier your relationship will be with time. Yeah, accepting that we are mortal, and therefore that bring that makes it precious, and um, just accepting that you might not be able to do every single thing that you want, but being okay with that because sometimes that can lead to us procrastinating and just not doing anything. Mm. And then the third thing then is so to make sure that I spend that time well, I've got to make my choices about my most important things. Yeah. So um, it then leads on to six practical tactics, yeah. and we thought that would be cool if we just went through those six tactics and also practically what might be a little exercise that you could do that can then help you lead towards that yeah we'll hear those in a molar so Laura when you think about it it makes sense right when you think about what you need to do time is like it's there but we don't have necessarily all the control over it. And if we focus too much in the future, then that stops us living in the now. So share with us some of the, the, the sort of six key tactics that we can start to adopt and how we might apply that to our everyday. What's the first one? Yeah, well, the first one is about making time now for those most important things. So not putting it off or not kind of imagining that, you know, you've got the whole life ahead of you to be able to do that, but putting time in now. So being prepared to sacrifice going through my to-do list in this hour, if you really, really want to write a book, 
being able to um, decide, well, I'm going to put this time aside now just to start it. So what is there something I can do now that then helps? And I think and also, Law, that came out of Robin Sharma's book, didn't it? A little bit about the 5am club, which I love. So when you think about if I get up at a certain amount of time and I use my time um, when it might be quieter to focus on the most important things, then you're more likely to achieve them, right? But it's a conscious effort to do that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, conscious effort, and, and and just linking to another book that you and I have um, been interested in recently that that being mortal book. So there are certain things that might not bring you short term pleasure, but long term pleasure over time. You know you've spent time well, so you might not be in the mood to read a child a bedtime story, but never reading a child a bedtime story at some point that might then start to feel you know you're not spending the time how you want to. But there are very few people that get to the end of a working day. You've got young kids in their life who think, I can't wait to read a bedtime story. <laughs> but you know that that's a good way to then spend it, the eudaimonic pleasure as opposed to the um, hedonic pleasure. So that again is one of those things around, well, actually what brings me that kind of longer term pleasure? And interestingly, Debs, from a practical point of view, the two exercises that tend to get people in a training room going, oh, that's really helped me reappraise actually what are my most important things is first of all, the jar of life philosophy. So this idea of these rocks that are in your life. So if someone were to lose their job, but they still got those family and those friends and those health um, aspects, your life still has purpose and it's still just about steady enough to be able to handle redundancy, for example. So the jar of life concept is, well, what are my big rocks? What are the things that actually keep me steady and those big things that are important to me? And then the six box exercise then is, all right, well, those, let's say six rocks, what might that mean over the next three months of some things that I want to make sure happen in those areas? So simple things like sit and eat together X amount of times a week. Um, it might be some one-off things like make sure I catch up with that friend. So the six box exercise is, well, practically, let me sit with a bit of paper or open document on a screen. What are those six areas, those rocks, the things that keep me steady? And then what might that mean for the next 12 weeks. So it's a three month plan and um, it can just help reset or refresh. So that six box exercise is bringing that first tactic to life, which is making time now for the most important things. What are my most important things? And what might that mean for some of the things that I really want to make happen over the next three months? It's not yeah. forever, but it's yes, just putting just, it in so it's near. It's near. And I think that links into the one of the six, doesn't he, that he does all the tactics about spending time with the people that you want to spend time with. Um, so that probably sort of crosses over into, if I think about who's important to me, which is, is align your time, free time with that of your friends, I think is that last one. Uh, and I know I'm jumping, but it just makes sense to then, okay, so if I want to do that, then how do I do it? Which is, as you said, the six box exercise is a great way to bring it to your present mind, which is like, okay, if I want to be different, I want to make a difference, then I have to bring it into the now um, and not just leave it floating somewhere for time to just disappear into. Yeah. So if you are a manager and you think this might be useful as a prioritization exercise with your team, this could be a flip chart exercise or a whiteboard exercise. If you are managing and you're, you're, you're applying this more to sort of your personal um, arena in life, then this is a great way to sit with a partner or with a friend and just go, right, actually, we know that time is limited. I really want to make this year count. 
amongst all of the stuff and all of the the things that will present itself, what are some of those most important things that I want to make sure we kind of focus on? And I suppose um, when we sort of look at the others, if we look at number two and three, so we've looked at number one and number six, so making that time for that critical task now, the most important task, your MITs, and then making sure you're aligning your free time with your friends. Um, let's, let's explore the others in a little bit more detail as well, Law, shall we? Yeah. So the second one is around limiting your in-progress projects. So i.e. this lure of multitasking and Greg McEwen in his book Essentialism, which a couple of people had recommended to us over the years. And again, that's another one that's got a great way of just articulating this is um, the if I focus, I'm more likely to achieve the less I focus on. So having, well, what what um, Oliver Bertman suggests is maximum three. So three. The power of three, eh, Law? Your favourite. There we go. <laughs> so a maximum of three. It's what I like this book so much, Dave. Exactly. Um, yeah, three <laughs> things kind of ticking along. Because if you then have lots and lots of things, it can then have overwhelming. Now, what's interesting, I think, with this, Debs, that people have valued recently, this year particularly, is but how do I say no in that moment? So let's say someone in the world of works, you know, my working world says, oh, I know you've done something like that before. Could I ask you to? And then suddenly projects four, five and six all start to come on their radar. How do I in that moment still look like a top performing, ambitious person, but say no? <laughs> and this is where one of the, the, the practical kind of takeaways from this is just that little phrase that we had on the sessions uh, um, earlier this month, Debs, around I'm saying yes to you, but no to the do. Yeah. So the practical task in the world of work uh, skill is being able to, in order to limit, at some point you're going to have to say no. So how do you say no in a way that still makes you look like a yes, I can do person? (laughs) So that's that little word phrase of, I'd love to help. This is my capacity at the moment. My intention is to collaborate. So what could be a way ahead or whatever word play would work for you. But the key motto a lot of people valued from the last few sessions where this has come up, Debs, is I'm saying yes to you, but no to the do. So we're not impacting our relationship in how we work. It's just right here, right now. I'm limiting my in-progress projects because I know that will make me more effective. Yeah. And that's such a good tip. And people have loved that, haven't they, Law? Which I think then links into his third point, right? Which is about being okay with discomfort, which I just thought was just magical. I know when um, I read it and you talked about this in the past, it's going, yeah, be okay with the things you're not okay with because that's going to help you. So tell us a little bit more about that then. So... It is not comfortable to know that you are sitting there reading a book while the email inbox is piling up. Yes. <laughs> but if I continually give in to that comfort task of, oh, i just quickly through, clear through my emails, I will never get to read the big, most important thing, which is let me read a book so we can then impart it onto others because that's our passion. You know, life is evolving so quickly. Anything that we can then glean and learn to be able to share is, is kind of good for us all. So we got you've got to be able to uh, uh, be aware of what might what discomfort might I need to tolerate in order to relax on holiday because I know that's going to be good for my mental health overall. So what might I need to just manage in myself so that I know switching off on holiday means there's going to be X amount of hundreds or thousands or whatever full on your email inboxes. And I have to be okay with that because otherwise I'll never be able to get a take a break. So one of the practical tools, Debs, that I thought might um, help with this is the three A's tool. 
So there might be some things that actually, um, from a discomfort point of view, in order for me to assert some boundaries or focus on the most important things or the bigger picture things, even though the small tasks are so easy to then spend a whole working day doing. And the three A's tool is taken from the world of cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's a way to be able to give a restless thought a home. That's how I describe it. Yeah, it's a nice way of looking at it. Yeah, because sometimes the things that can bounce around and disrupt sleep or disrupt our inner inner calm to be able to focus in that hour that you've set aside to do something proactive um, is because there's there's this kind of worries kind of bouncing around. So the three A's tool is, do I need to avoid it? Do I need to alter it? Do I need to just accept it? I'm going to need to tolerate and accept that when I get off the plane back in back home, there might be lots and lots and lots of notifications of things I haven't been able to keep on top of. But as long as I know that, then I can then accept that that is in order to be able to do something that is a bigger picture benefit and that outweighs the cost of being able to do that. So the third tactic is we've got to resist distraction by being okay with discomfort. And the takeaway tool might be from that is the three A's. What might I need to avoid, alter or accept so I can wrap my head around? I might not be able to do everything all at once, but it's better doing the longer term things that I know are going to actually add more joy or more benefit than being constantly at the at the helm of an inbox, for example. Yeah. And a lot of people struggle with that, don't they? They seem to be the slave to the inbox. And I think that's also that tactic number four, which he talks about, which is stop expecting the future to unfold exactly as planned. So you might have done that. So I think there's a link with that that says, actually, do I accept it, avoid it or alter it, which is important. The little practical bit with that, Debs, is if if you're expecting everything to unfold to plan, that's because you've only planned the gold outcome. Yes. And another little thing that people are enjoying at the moment is having a gold, silver and bronze. So this is my expected plan for how this day is going to go. But there's also my silver and my bronze in recognition that not everything can go exactly to plan. So that that's the kind of the takeaway with that. I love that. So Law, so one, we've heard six box, which helps us with the first um, first couple of things. We've had our three A's, we've had our gold, silver and bronze. So yeah, wrap us up with the other two that we need to consider. Cool. So the fifth one is, in light of all of that, we've got to develop our patience for um, the current pace of life. Yes. So you might have to queue or wait or things go out yeah. of the way. Yeah. So we know that the links to resilience tool, Debs, this idea of high frustration tolerance. So if we can move from that language of drama, it when it, this happens, it really winds me up into that language of karma preference. My preference isn't that I'm stuck in traffic, but if that's what is required what can I do in the meantime? So that preference thing, uh, language, which then develops your patience and your tolerance, because there'll always be things that are outside of your control. The anxiety comes because we know time is finite. <laughs> we haven't got years and years that we can sit there on a motorway. So therefore, what can be some things that just help develop patience in that moment? And that little preferential language, a lot of people are finding that useful just to be easier with the unease of things not going to plan. Yeah, I think such good tools. So I suppose um, what would be useful to understand um, as we sort of come to the end of reviewing this book, which I've loved, uh, is just to get your thoughts on what have you taken from it? What's your one main takeaway? But also what would be your call to action? So let's um, let's see what you have to say about that, Law. So my main takeaway from this book is just even the title itself, 4,000 Weeks, stops us in our tracks. It gives us a big dose of perspective 
what might be bugging you on your un, uh, your yet to do to do list. Actually, if we're lucky, it will be still be there waiting for you tomorrow. It's that reminder of actually time is finite, which therefore it's it's precious. And what does that mean then in terms of spending our time well? And I guess my overall call to action would be, and it links to that tactic that you mentioned at the start, which is his sixth tactic, which is align your free time with that of your friends. So there aren't many of us that, that, that you know, can imagine getting to, towards the, the twilight of our life thinking, I wish I hadn't spent so much time with friends. <laughs> you know, that's one of <laughs> the things true. that actually yeah, yeah. people will people say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, whether that's friends at work or friends out yeah. at work. So my final call to action would be, how are you going to align what you do in an average week compared to others? And that's where the the the, the audience favourite key tactic, Debs, is the 21 packets of time idea. So you imagine that week, you've got seven days of the week, you've got your morning, afternoon and evening. That gives you three times seven, 21 packets of time. When can you align your default diary? So it lines up with the right people. Because if you're always off when no one else is around, that might work for you. Depends if you want peace. But if you need a couple of key people around, because that's how you want to enjoy that leisure time, then what might that mean to get a little bit organized? So my final call to action would be, if you're wanting just reset and refresh and listening to this review, it's just got you thinking from a bigger perspective, then we only get 4,000 off these yes. weeks. Which is about 72 years, he says, isn't it, or something? Yeah, 76. Yeah. Yeah. 76 years, yeah. And even the longest living woman in the world, Debs, who, who made it to 120, that's only 5,200 <gasps> weeks. See, when you look at it like that, yeah. So it kind of does jolt you a little bit. So the 21 packets of time is a great way just to reset and refresh. How am I spending my default time within the week? So just those usual kind of patterns and stuff. And am I like, is there a, a way that I could align this? So when I'm off, I'm up to, I'm really able to maximize my time. So that would be my call to action. Get a sheet of paper, put out 21 packets of time. And it's amazing how just that bigger picture perspective can just help us to have a more friendly cooperative relationship with time rather than it feeling like it's there, you know, and we're kind of at the behest of it. So that would be my love key that. take. Oh, I love that, Law. That's such a good call to action. And I suppose my share of the secret would be that if you hear anybody close to you, friend, you know, working partner, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. and you hear them say, I never have enough time. I feel guilty about leaving the inbox full up, all of that stuff, then get them to listen into this episode because this book will enable you to rethink what's important and re prioritize. How do you get the most out of your time, not fritter it away? So my share of the secret would be you could definitely get them to have a listen, get them to do some of the techniques that we've shared, maybe the 21 packets of time, the jar of life, the six box exercise or rethink from the three A's. I think it would just be really cool and have three key priorities, which as you say, is your magic number around that. So that would be my share of the secret. So it's been such good to talk about this book, Laura. And I know next time we're talking about another book where we're looking at um, how do we talk to people? I think how to talk to anyone, which is our next review book um, that we're doing. So it's been an absolute pleasure. And I'm going to go away and we'll rework my 21 packets of time now, Laura. So thank you. My pleasure. Big thanks to Oliver Berkman for the uh, for writing the book in the first place. Yes. So have a brilliant week. Yes, Debs, you too, I'll Lord. see you on the other side. See you on the other side. Love you lots. Love you. Bye. Bye. 
We hope you've enjoyed this episode. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at secretsfromacoach at aol.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you're a Spotify listener, give us a rating as it makes it easier for us to share the secret with others.